my money. Money. I get money from you. Money in the bank. Young money. Money, 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 money. It's the rich man's world. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. World-renowned financial advisor and best-selling author Barry James Dyke will arm you with the truth. This is The Economic Warrior. Please note, the opinions expressed on this show are of the individuals who speak them, and not necessarily of Portsmouth Community Radio, its members, or board of trustees. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Barry James Dyke, and I'm here with uh, my sidekick, Will Pierce, and handsome Phil Kleiger at the en- as the engineer. That is me. That is you, and I uh, got Will here, and uh, we have a great uh, show today. We're gonna have yeah, great one. Uh, we're gonna have Nell Minow mm-hmm. from uh, Value Wedge Advisors, who's kind of the queen of corporate governance. And okay, yeah. So and um, in any event, yeah. So it's, she's she's quite the lady. So uh, she and she speaks her mind. I like I like people who tell the truth. Now you're known as kind of like the queen of corporate governance in in America, which is which is which is kind of a neat title. Uh, it is. Well, you know, so <laughs> well you well, we love you, Nell, because you speak the truth. Okay, so um, could you just tell our audience a little bit uh, about your background and uh, how you got to run uh, uh, GMI and the corporate library and your background, and then we have some questions about you know your dad and so forth. But if you could wonderful. T- well, I'm I'm very very glad to be on the show. I'm such a fan of your work, and I thank you very much for having me on. So, uh, let's see. I was working in the government. I, I worked uh, at the Office of Management and Budget uh, next door to the White House, as part of the Executive Office of the President, and there I met a man named Robert Monks, who was working for the then Vice President, uh, who was George H.W. Bush, and uh, we hit it off very well, and um, uh, he said to me one day, I'm going to start a new company. It's called Institutional Shareholder Services, and we're going to advise institutional shareholders on corporate governance. And I think the only words that were familiar to me were advise and we're. I just had never heard any of those words before, even though I'd been to law school and I'd worked in the government. I really had no idea about the size of institutional shareholders or about the issues presented to them by corporate governance. And I could not have arrived at a better time. It was the height of the crazy uh, takeover era, something I had looked at uh, in terms of its economic impact while I was at OMB, but really uh, not uh, from the private side. And uh, so, you know, uh, there were securities that made any size of takeover, hostile takeover possible. Things were crazy. There were horrendous abuses of shareholders by both uh, takeover artists and by uh, entrenched management. And there were, for the first time, shareholders large enough to understand what was going on and and object to it. So I couldn't have come at a better time. And uh, Institutional Shareholder Services, where I was the fourth person hired, of course, later became a massive force. Uh, Bob is an incredible visionary. And he and I um, both enjoy being in startups better than in established companies. So when the, each company got up and running, we would leave and start a new one. So we were at uh, ISS for about five years, uh, spun off um, Lens, which was an activist investor from uh, 1990 to 2000, sold that um, and spun off the in-house research operation to what became GMI, sold that, and now have uh, another company called Value Edge Advisors. 
It's uh, you. Oh, well, God bless you, uh, Nell. You're you're a capitalist at heart too. So, but uh, um, definitely, uh, I listen. I went to the University of Chicago. Oh, oh okay. nobody is more of a free market capitalist than a graduate of the University of Chicago. Okay, you know, and and you know, so 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 now the thing which impressed me is that uh, and. Uh, uh, and by the way, anyone who's listening, uh, and please go, you can Google the PBS special on uh, Newton Minow, your, your dad, who uh, I, I thought was really neat because uh, um, he worked for JFK as the FCC. And, and could, you, could you tell people about the story about how, you know, SS Minow and Gilligan's Island and how that all started? Because people, you know. <laughs> sure. Could, well, yeah. my, my dad, uh, who celebrated his 92nd birthday last week. I went out to Chicago to have dinner with him to celebrate. Um, He has been, uh, he has had really the most extraordinary life. I highly recommend the PBS documentary, which is available for free online, about him because uh, he has been involved in everything. And he had not once but twice befriended young men who went on to become president. One was JFK, one was uh, Barack Obama. And uh, the story of how Barack Obama met Michelle as he was an intern in my dad's office, and they assigned Michelle to be his supervisor, is a great story, too. But anyway, all right, so my dad, uh, in May of 1961, as the then 35-year-old chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, gave a speech to the National Association of Broadcasters. And up until then, the FCC had really been pretty much the you know captive to the broadcasters. Everybody who worked at the FCC wanted to get a job in the industry, and they'd been very cozy. They'd had a number of scandals, both in the industry and in the commission itself. My dad wanted to do something very different, so he got up and he said to the broadcasters, you are not doing enough for the people who are loaning you the airwaves. Uh, you are obligated by virtue of the license we give you to serve the public interest. You've got no more than 15 minutes of news on the sh- on the, uh, in the air every day, it's mostly game shows and westerns, and uh, you simply got to do better than that. And uh, a man named Sherwood Schwartz, who was a television producer, was so offended by what my father <laughs> said that he decided to insult him yeah. by naming the sinking ship on Gilligan's Island after him, <laughs> and that is how it came to be called, the SS Minnow. It, 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 that's that's a fascinating story. But anyhow, um, but one of the things that really uh, impressed me too is that your grand Parents, okay, were they were they immigrants? Like they were yeah. Ukrainian Jews or Polish Jews? I can't remember, but it's just it's very. Depends insp- on, <laughs> it depends on where the boundary is drawn between Poland and Russia, uh, whether they were Russian or Polish. But yeah, basically, my um, my grandparents were both from what's now Ukraine. Okay, and on on my father's side, on my mother's side, they were uh, Russian and Polish. You know, but 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 what it really admired me is that you had an uncle, and again, if people watch the PBS special, you'll see this. You had an uncle who was, I don't know, disabled, if you will, Nell. I mean, I don't know. But yes. he, but but what really impressed me is that your grandmother and your dad always stuck up for him. And my is my conclusion that you, the Minnow family, if you will, uh, got inspiration um, to help others uh, from from your from your dad and your grandmother. Is that is that correct? That is absolutely true. And my and my mom as well comes from a, a tradition like that. But yes, my father's older brother was disabled. There was, of course, no Americans with Disabilities Act at that time. The school wouldn't take him. And my grandmother, who was an immigrant, not a very educated person, 
she insisted she forced the Milwaukee public school system to take him. He later graduated from college with honors and was, you know, a beloved member of our family. But he looked odd and um, had trouble communicating, and uh, it was uh, he had a very difficult life in that respect. But he was beloved by everybody in our family and was a great treasure to us. Yeah, so you know, I see this compassion, which you get in, in the documentary. And uh, now the thing is that you've so you've kind of. Uh, uh, you've become you've, you've become infamous in your own right now. And your sister was your sister the Har- the dean of Harvard uh, Law School. Am I correct? Uh, she was until last summer. She she completed her term, and she's now just a member of the faculty at Harvard Law School. Okay, so she's so a, her and, husband. Yeah. And, and what is is your other sister uh, an achiever like you? Or? My sister, yeah, definitely. No, I'm the slacker in the family. My my other <laughs> sister Mary is. Uh, so Martha is the dean of the Harvard Law School. She's the one who recommended uh, her student, Barack Obama, that he should come be an intern for my dad. Um, and then Mary is the leading expert in the country on legal issues pertaining to libraries. She was appointed by Barack Obama to the government agencies that oversees all libraries and museums, and she consults with libraries all around the world on issues like copyright and um, e-books and privacy. Okay. Oh, great. So, but the reason why we have you on today, Nell, is to talk about corporate governance, okay? And we want to get into the stock buybacks, and we probably want to talk about G in particular. But um, I, as you know, I've written a couple of books on this stuff, Nell, and um, I want to get your opinion. I don't think there's really much corporate governance in America right now. But what do you say, you, what do you say about the state of corporate governance in, in America well, today? Well, I have kind of a Dickensian best of times, worst of times assessment, because you know, when I first got into the business of corporate governance, when Bob offered me the job back in uh, 1986, um, the there was a public company where the CEO's father was the chairman of the comp committee. O.J. Simpson was on five <laughs> boards, including an audit committee, where <laughs> there was only an, one other person on the audit committee, and he wasn't famous, but he also didn't know anything about accounting. And uh, the CEOs of... Inland Steel and Cummins Engine chaired each other's comp committees. And there was a company called General Motors. You're familiar with General Motors? (laughs) They had a a board meeting system where it was presentation, 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 and there was no time on the agenda for questions or discussion. So we've come a long way since then. There are a lot of improvement. Boards are much more active, much more engaged. Um, There's much better oversight uh, also, when I got into this business, believe it or not, there were only two different categories of written communications that had to be approved by the government before you could send them out. One was basically nuclear secrets, and the other was shareholder communication. So if I wanted to write letters to the other shareholders of a company to tell them that I didn't agree with what the board was doing or that I wanted them to support my shareholder proposal, I'd have to get the SEC to approve it first. I mean, that's ridiculous. And when you did submit it to the SEC, their approval process, first of all, took forever. And this is a you know an area where time is really of the essence. And then they would come back to you and say, you need to, you know, you quoted the New York Times here, you need to have a footnote saying the New York Times doesn't necessarily support my views. And you had to put in my opinion in every sentence. I mean, like I was circulating something that wasn't my opinion. It was ridiculous. So the rules are much better now for shareholder communication. The um, uh, disclosure of CEO pay is better. 
On the other hand, CLP itself is much, much worse, uh, and um, and uh, there are still a number of abuses by corporations. So some things are much, much better. Some things much worse. Yeah, because this is you know um, you know I, I follow this pretty tightly as, as you know, Nell, and you know I'm saying it's like uh, if you look at the banks and financial institutions with their paid and contact conduct costs and fines since. 2011. It's 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 eye opening. I mean, uh, um, I think Bank of America paid uh, over 54 billion in, in fines and contact costs, and I don't know. It's just yeah. it's you know the SEC has the authority, which as far as I can tell, has never used a single time to bar somebody from ever serving on a public company board again. That's ridiculous. They should do that every time that a, a company has to pay a fine like that. The board member should be barred. Yeah, so it's just you know, and you know, I look at it th- this way too. I don't know if you if you read uh, the the journal yesterday, Nell, but did you see the, the, we were talking this prior to you having you on? You know, Deutsche Bank, which was kind of like the Walmart of uh, uh, purveyor of uh, subprime mortgages during the financial crisis. Yeah. They said they they spent um, well. They had, a year ago, the Justice Department said they had to uh, fork over seven point two billion. To, to to settle their their you know their role in the mortgage um, in the financial meltdown, and then I read in the journal yesterday that their their um, uh, that uh, Deutsche Bank and, and Black and Blackstone are now uh, doing uh, drive by appraisals or broker uh, broker price appraisals, um, which are kind of I guess they're kind of illegal for individual homes, but but if you do them in bulk, you, it's legal. I don't know. So it's just, you know, so do you think there's been any improvement in the shareholder situation? Yeah, I do think there's been a lot of improvement, but I think, as I said, there's been a lot of abuses as well. And unfortunately, this administration is perpetuating some of the worst aspects, yeah, yeah. particularly with regard to the uh, Consumer Product uh, Commission, um, the uh, uh, you, you know, the man who's running it now has is is opposed to the idea of it existing, and apparently he's in favor of uh, payday lenders. It's you know, it's you know, I, I did, that, that and that one drives me nuts because you know, if you study any history, okay, if you study uh, uh, Christianity or Catholicism or Judaism, even Islam or whatever, it's always there should be honesty about um, issues surrounding money now, and. Um, it's kind of like we don't have any rules. Uh, I mean, you're uh, you're down in Virginia, but we're up in New Hampshire now, and and you know you you can um, go to the local like in Seabrook, New Hampshire, uh, and and take your car and, and do a car title loan, and they they can charge you legally charge you three four hundred percent interest. I mean, I, it's it's disgusting. Yeah, you know, my sidekick Will has a question for you now. Yeah, I think you were you were referring to a Mulvaney and uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Board. So, yes. Yes, and this was set up um, after the financial crisis. It's right, a, it's Elizabeth. This was Elizabeth Warren's mm-hmm. big, uh, big contribution. And, and now they're trying to make it into another captured agency, or or just yeah, dismantle absolutely. it. And that's something, of course, I saw a lot in my in my time in government uh, that agencies do become captive to the uh, to the groups that they regulate. Uh, but this uh, is a level of kleptocracy that is absolutely staggering. You know, it's turning our country into a banana republic. Yeah, amen. Agreed. Amen. Agreed. So we got an amen here from everyone here, uh, Nell. And, you know, and this is what you know, because as you know, uh, uh, you know, and, and uh, 
I, I think of. Have you seen uh, Noam Chomsky's uh, Rucking from America? Now, you you all now also has as a business, and you still in reviewing film. films now? Absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. But have you uh, have you seen Requiem for uh, American Dream by Noam Chomsky? No, I haven't. Oh, you need. Do you have Netflix? <laughs> yeah. You need to you need to watch it. Okay. You know. I think Noah was re- reviewing uh, family friendly family friendly films, and so uh-huh. I actually refer review all films okay. because uh, I'm a full service critic, but my reviews do include parental advisories. But remember that the biggest challenge parents have with films is the ones that the teenagers want to see. So I review uh, PG-13 and R-rated films as well. Okay, yeah. And matter of fact, Nell gave – we had uh, – a couple weeks ago, uh, Nell, we had on um, uh, Paul Young who wrote the uh, – the, the, what was, what's the book now? The um, – Oh, the Shack. The Shack. Okay, we, and you reviewed the Shack. You oh, actually, I did review that. Yes, you reviewed the Shack. We we had Paul on. He was a wonderful guest, and uh, uh, and you gave it a good review. And I thought it was a great movie and a great book. And um, so very but, touching. Very touching, and, and just a wonderful guy. And we had him on the show a couple of weeks ago, and and uh, he was a great guest. But um, but one of the things. So you you review. But anyhow, I remember Chomsky's movie. But one of the reasons. Um, we have you on. We want to talk about stock buybacks now, and um, then we're gonna to have to take a little break. But uh, and then have you on after the break. But um, could you just? I know what stock buybacks are, but could I think it's very destructive. Could you explain to the audience what a stock buyback is? Sure, that's when a company buys their own stock, and it's not necessarily and always a bad thing. Uh, it's when the company thinks that the stock is undervalued. Um, unfortunately, uh, and I've written about this on the Huffington Post and on our own blog at Value Edge Advisors, uh, it's like just like subprime mortgages, it's been horribly abused. And I am deeply concerned that the tax bill is going to lead to even more abuses. You know, board members and uh, executives have got one job, and that is to be stewards for the money that we invest to give us the best possible return. And generally speaking, that comes from making better products and services that they can sell in a sustainable way, <clears throat> not by the short-term impact of buying back stock. Obviously, when they buy back stock, there's a little bump in the price because it's a supply and demand. There's less stock in the market. Unfortunately, the way that executive compensation is set up, uh, it it can have um, it can create misaligned incentives for the executives. And once you've bought back the stock, you know that's that's you can't keep pulling that rabbit out of the hat. You're not you're not making the company stronger by buying back stock. And what I'm particularly concerned about is the unprecedented rise of companies borrowing money to buy back stock. It's one thing if you've got surplus cash, and that's a way of returning some of that to shareholders. You could also declare a special dividend if you wanted. But if if you've got surplus cash, you don't have anything else to do with it, okay, buy back some stock. If, however, you're borrowing money to buy back stock, it seems to me that's eating the seed corn. That's a very, very, very dangerous idea, especially if, A, you fail to adjust the uh, CEO pay goals uh, accordingly, and B, you don't disclose exactly what your strategy is in doing that, and that's been the case. Well, where are they getting this money that they're uh, borrowing to uh, buy back their stocks? Well, people loan money. That's, <laughs> there's always around, there's always people around who are happy to loan you money. 
this is what we see, and I and actually, it, um, there's a great uh, online video, by the way, Gerald Sullivan today did with Ron Paul about the uh, about the the potential for additional stock stock buybacks with this new Trump uh, tax bill, which uh, I feel with this money is going to be repatriated, it's going to come back and buy back stocks. But this is big business for Wall Street now. Am I correct? Because they're they're going out and they're they're lending companies money to debt and they're they're repackaging the debt and they're selling it to mutual funds and what have you. So it's it's pretty hard uh, thing to fight, but. Would Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound like the subprime? <laughs> you know, yeah. So yeah. So so this is what happened. Now the biggest stewards, Nell, and and you could uh, be uh, of capital in America today, and I I think you probably agree. Someone agrees that are the mutual fund. The biggest institutional shareholders now are mutual fund companies, whether it be Vanguard or Fidelity or State Street or BlackRock or uh, Janus or uh, uh, American Funds or Capital World, which they're known as. But they Nell and 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 um, Gretchen Morganson from the Times, by the way, uh, uh, would agree is that none of these mutual fund companies say anything about uh, executive compensation. I mean, they vote was it ninety over ninety percent of the time for these high packages. That is true, and they shouldn't. And that's your money, and you should you should uh, tell them not to do it. You know, I, I have often said that I think that a mutual fund specifically based on um, rationalizing executive pay would get a lot of business. Yeah, but I'm just, you know, because I, uh, I, I, I'm just amazed because even like Vanguard, you know, everyone says, oh, I have Vanguard, whatever, you know. Uh, even, but they never vote against the high, these high packages. I mean, uh, who's the guy, Philip Damond or whatever, who is the head of Viacom, one of these companies, I mean, the share price went down 45%, and he's still got like 50 million bucks. I mean, yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? It's no. horrifying, it's, and it's, it's bad in every possible way. It's bad in terms of the incentives for the company, um, and, you know, there is data showing that executives with more stock options implement more buybacks, duh. Um, but it's also bad for our economy. It's bad for our society. It promotes a level of income inequality that is just catastrophic. Yeah. You know, the, the markets don't run on money. The markets run on trust. And if there was no trust in the market, um, then why would I invest with you? Because I would not believe that you would do something for me. I would believe that you would just appropriate uh, the capital for yourself. The markets have to run on trust or else no one will invest in them. And society also runs on trust. And the idea is that I could be the next Mark Zuckerberg, the next Bill Gates. Yep. If nobody believes that, if we feel that the system is rigged, uh, it will collapse. Yeah, and, and and that's my worry. I'm mean, I'm a capitalist at heart, and as I say, you know, I have my own business, and uh, Will here has his own real estate business, and uh, you know, my friend engineer Phil, he's a musician, so you're your own business person. We believe in capitalism, but I don't believe in crony capitalism, Nell, and um, uh, so I just, you know, I don't know. It's a, I just see more and more of it. Um, but so. This is. I had a question for you. Now, did you did you get the notes I sent you on GE? Yes. I mean, I mean, <laughs> I mean. So, we, we, you know, here we have was this is the company started by Thomas Edison, okay, and then with uh, J.P. Morgan, I guess, about a hundred years ago or something like that. It was kind of the largest industrial company in the world, but this has been a basket case, Nell. I mean, they um, 
I just kind of just pulled the, the, the figures together on this. Um, you know, since uh, ML took over, the, the company's lost like $300 billion in market cap. Um, you know, if they didn't get $74 billion in talc during the financial crisis, they would have gone under. Um, you know, it's, uh, but they, they, they purchased, they did $46 billion in stock buybacks now, and the stock went backwards. Well, you know, I've always felt that it was a weird collection of assets that only Jack Welch and his personal reputation could maintain, and that it was really time to, you know how Michelangelo said he looked at the block of stone and just chipped away everything that wasn't the horse? It's time to do that long past with GE. And uh, I, don't think that, uh, I don't think that it knows what kind of a company it wants to be. Um, and uh, and that's why they're kind of flailing around. Well, they they wanted to be a financial services. <laughs> it was a bank. A that was their problem. They turned into the, yeah. the fifth largest bank in the world. You know. I know they were. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know. And but they're but yeah but uh, you know that's the I I I don't I think that company's a mess and I think the market recognizes that. Yeah. No one. Um, no. Who who are these uh, institutions? Like um, Vanguard and so forth, uh, when they vote uh, on on their proxies, on their stock proxies, um, it, it, for a while it, we couldn't find out who they were voting for, but but now we can. Yes, actually, that was something that Bob Monks and I did. Uh, we had it took us 14 years. We lobbied the SEC for 14 years to make them uh, issue a regulation requiring mutual funds to disclose how they vote their proxies. Um, so once a year, they have to do a filing showing how they do. And I used to, when I was at uh, GMI, I, we issued a report every year, uh, basically a naughty nice list saying who's in the tank and who's not. Um, and I could never understand why people didn't pay attention to that. That was my favorite thing that we did every year. Nobody seemed to care about it. So yes, you can find out how you're uh, how your mutual fund is votes the proxies, and you can also find out what their proxy voting rules are. And the the reason we finally got the SEC to agree with us after 14 years of every year going in and saying we think that the in, investors in mutual funds need to find this out. Uh, this is important information of how the money is being um, utilized on their behalf. Uh, is it had to do with former presidential candidate Carly Fiorina. Uh, she was trying to push through the deal with the HP, and um, Deutsche was voting against. And she basically paid them a million dollars to switch their vote. So that was the point where the SEC said, all right, I think you have a point. I think, you, I think we should uh, require this to be disclosed. Now, it's not easy to get. It's not easy to read. Uh, but it is at least public, and people can look at it. Um, the problem is, let's say that you're Vanguard, and you're sitting in your office and you're deciding how to vote your proxies in GE, and whether you want to vote against the CEO pay package at GE, and uh, your, op your options are vote against the pay package or vote in favor of the pay package and solicit GE for a 401k business. Yeah, it, it's, it's, yeah it's just, and yeah, it's very dysfunctional because this, um, yeah, and and this, you know, because I look at the numbers now, and I mean, I mean, Jeffrey ML, I mean, he lost three hundred billion in market value. 
and he still walked out the the door with I don't know four or five hundred million in total package. I mean, his annuity alone, no, uh, his executive annuity alone is worth eighty billion, eighty million dollars. I mean, and, yeah, and at that pay level, who needs an annuity? And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm saying of any kind. Nels, have you ever, um, when you were advising uh, institutional investors on how to vote their proxies, or uh, did you ever try to get uh, smaller investors to follow along with your votes? Well, as I said, in those days, there were a lot of restrictions on what you could communicate with investors. And uh, and if you were going to communicate with more than 10 investors, you had to get it all approved by the SEC first. Um, There have been a number of efforts to come up with some economic way to let individual investors know what would be in their best interest in terms of voting. But there are a couple of problems with that. One is... They don't seem to want to buy. They don't seem to want to pay for that service. There's kind of a collective choice problem, and the other is very, very few individual investors are stock pickers. Mostly, they uh, invest through mutual funds. I see. Yeah, yeah, and and I I call it the rise of the asset management industrial complex because exactly that's exactly right. You know, and and so you know this is the whole thing now. Is that, you know it's uh, I guess you get into. Uh, I know we're being economics. It's kind of a rent-seeking, you know, and uh, yeah, and and so this, you know, you mentioned uh, your dad as an example. You, you know, we, we're, we're I think we're put on this earth to be good stewards of what we've been given, you know, and I and and I just I just see this stuff now is just um, it's it's so crazy. Um, what can individuals do in, in now? Do you want me? Because I'm I'm the reason why I have the show is I I try to tell people the truth. And try to help them improve their financial well-being, you know. Um, but how can you? What would you suggest for our audience um, to become better informed? Because you are considered a national expert on this stuff. Well, thank you very much. Um, as I said, most individuals do not pick stocks. That's a very, very small group. Uh, mostly, you're with you are investing in a mutual fund, and yeah. why not? You know, you don't. I always say you're not going to play. Uh, basketball against Michael Jordan for money, why would you try to bet against you know, your own uh, hour a week that you can give to this to somebody who's doing it full-time uh, on Wall Street? So that's fine. I, I believe in mutual funds. I particularly believe in index funds. But what you should do is when you're trying to decide between Vanguard and Tia Kraft and Schwab, ask, look and see, how do you vote? How do they vote their proxies? Do they vote in favor of every CEO pay package? Do they vote against... Uh, shareholder resolutions on um, better uh, uh, sustainable strategies. And, um, you know, I have, if you do ever vote your own proxy, this is my 30-second how to vote uh, a proxy, okay? Look at the proxy card. you got to look at three things. This will, You can do this in 30 seconds. Don't throw it away. Yeah. This will take you <laughs> just 30 seconds. First, look at the bottom. See if there are any shareholder resolutions. If there are, vote against the entire board. And the reason for that is shareholder resolutions are filed by responsible people like the California Public Employees Retirement System. If the board is not willing to negotiate with them, you've got a problem. Okay? So that's part number one. Vote yes on the resolutions. Vote no on the board. If board members do not have any stock, vote no. If they don't go to meetings, vote no. That's all there in the proxy. That's really, And then vote yes on the auditor. That's really only all you need to know. When in doubt, vote no on the pay plan as well. 
But the most important thing is for you to reach out to whoever is managing your money, to whoever your broker is, and say, by the way, who is voting the proxies and how are they voting them? And are we in the right place? Is there a place we can go? Is there a mutual fund that does a better job of voting proxies that where we should? Because one index fund and another index fund have the exact same returns, right? Yeah. So the question is, you're not going to beat them on price. You're not going to beat them on returns. Let's find the one that does the best on voting proxies. No, when you say, do they go to the meetings, do they go to the um, shareholder meetings? Is that what you're... Do they go to the board meetings? The The company has to to disclose whether they go to at least 75% of the meetings. And if you watch the documentary about about my dad, you will see that I had to recommend a vote against him because one year oh, he missed right. more than 25% of the meetings. I me- well, we could use your dad here. We could way. use your, your dad here, by the way, because uh, although it seemed to improve is that, uh, uh, you see, we're kind of passionate. About, we're just a local community radio station uh, now, but uh, Bloomberg bought our, uh, uh, our sister signal like down the road in Newburyport, and so it's kind of been drowning us out, although it has been improving, uh, Phil. Am I correct? The signal is now up and clear. But, um, Yay! Yeah, so, <laughs> That's but, great. Yeah, Temporarily, you know, I so, assume. This is all well, you know, my dad was a corporate director of five companies, including uh, CBS and Manpower, Aon, and, uh, and I learned a lot from him about how to be a good director. Yeah, well, we'd like to uh, learn about how to become stronger in the community because, as, as you know, Nell, one of the reasons we have the show is that the media is a mess. Um, uh, it, did you notice that the bankruptcy of um, Cumulus happened like what happened about a month ago, guys? And which was the second largest uh, uh, media company in the United States. Nell, are you familiar with that bankruptcy? No. Yeah, Cumulus went bankrupt. Uh, uh, when did uh, Phil Google that? When it went bankrupt? Uh, do you, I think around Christmas. Was it around Christmas time? I don't recall exactly. Yeah. So we have, and so then we get iHeart. There's a, a friend of ours, I, uh, Josh Cosman, who on the show. He's uh, he works the New York Post, but iHeart is 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 in the they there there's going to be some type of reorg or a, a, a um, oh yeah you know I would. I would be upset about iHeart and the and the you know complete takeover and the lack of local um, focus on uh, and media. Except that there are so many opportunities by um, podcasts and uh, and other uh, other outlets that uh, that I I think that you know even the big radio conglomerates are suffering. Yeah, be, yeah, because it's too much debt now. I mean, <laughs> it's a lot of it's just common, bloody common sense. I mean, that was a was a two thousand seven LBO for uh, you know I don't know were they for like twenty billion or twenty three billion or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's just financial engineering. It has nothing to do with uh, creating a healthy company. You know, and uh, so um, so that's so so we're all in favor of uh, the local media, and uh, we all do this out of definitely. Our love, for, you know, for for the truth, and um, we're, we're so grateful to have you on. Um, the, uh, but um, you know what amazes me too, Nell, is that I don't know how many people actually uh, read this, but if they just go on Yahoo, <laughs> which is a great site, I don't know if you use it at all, but mm-hmm. there's so many of these executives, they don't even own any of the stock, or they own like less than one tenth of one percent, and they're still making three, four, five, ten. I don't know what's the average CEO pay now, Nell. Oh, my goodness. You know, let me put it this way. The first CEO pay package I ever complained about was $11 million. That's chump change right now. 
Yeah. I think it's about 75. Is it, is it that high? Yeah. Well, so, so is there, um, for people who want to uh, maybe change the way corporations work, uh, is it uh, possible to do that through the um, uh, corporate governance, uh, you know, in our role as Listen, shareholders? Listen, corporate governance is going to save the world. I really believe that. Mm. When the Trump administration is pulling back on climate change and on other kinds of consumer protections, it's been very interesting to me that it has been the business leaders who've spoken up and said, hey, you know, we've got green eye shades. We can do the math, and we can see that there are real risks ahead of us as a result of climate change, and we are going to address them. So, you know, I, I love seeing, you know, Exxon pull out of ALEC, uh, which is a vile, disgusting organization, the Business Roundtable, the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, I don't mean the little chambers of commerce in each town. I mean the big, ugly National Chamber of Commerce, which is a completely different organization. They've been, they've been fighting uh, uh, really on climate change and other issues for a long time. So it's really the business leaders have really stepped up. And, you know, the, um, the majority vote that we got on shareholder resolutions on climate change at ExxonMobil and at Occidental last year, almost two-thirds of the vote, that's because the investor community, including these mutual funds, is recognizing that, hey, we can't wait for the government to fix this for us. We're going to have to do it ourselves. So, yeah, I do think that we're going to see a surge of better uh, focus on governance and on sustainability coming from the market. Okay, so if I'm a, um, if I have some stocks in a mutual fund, can I ask the mutual fund to let me vote my uh, proxies? <laughs> no. Or? no, 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 no. You, you, re- you really <laughs> so, so you, have you know put- all that paperwork you signed when you opened the account? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's in there. Yeah, so yeah, forget it, Will. You get, it's arbitration. You don't have a, you don't have a prayer. You know what I mean? Okay, <laughs> no, well, you I'll, can't. I'll you, I, I have my... I had my stocks in a credit union, and I was allowed to vote them. But individual yeah. stocks, though. Not yeah. the individual companies, though. Well, I voted, I voted proxies. I just held stocks. Yeah. And um, it's oh, okay. sooner. Well, individual right. stocks and, you can and do. And I, you know, I own some stocks outright myself just because I like to follow the market, and I put a little money into it. And so I, you know, I get – in fact, I voted – uh, a proxy um, today, uh, and uh, I saw that one of my friends had a shareholder proposal about um, disclosure of political uh, contributions, and I voted was happy to vote in favor of it. Well, that's awesome. Well, Nell, it's, we'll come to the end of our time. Where can people find out more about you and value what you? Now, are you still doing this? Bob Monks is up the road. I get, he's up in Portland. Yeah, is, he still, is he? Is he? Are you guys doing another act, or what's the story? Yeah, definitely. We've got this company, Value Edge Advisors, and I run the blog on Value Edge Advisors. Just go to valueedgeadvisors.com, and uh, you'll see uh, my thoughts. You can read what I write on the Huffington Post and other places, and uh, follow me on Twitter, uh, and Minnow on Twitter, and you can see my movie reviews at moviemom.com. Yeah, and so is, is Bob Monk still in the game, or is he? Is he you bet. Oh, he is. Yeah, we, maybe, maybe we could have him on. I like he he's, knows a little yeah, more about private he's still equity. Still, my hero. We've been working together now for thirty years, and uh, he is—he's uh, the best. He's a true visionary. All right. Well, I'd like to share my my research on private equity because uh, he—I think he, he did some YouTube's on that, and uh, we're kind of um, the same uh, uh, and come from the same cloth. But anyhow, so Nell, let's keep in touch. Uh, thank you so much. God bless you. you. Keep. Keep pushing back the frontiers of ignorance, Nell. <laughs> Will do. And it's been a great pleasure to be on the show with you. Thank you. Thank you. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
This has been The Economic Warrior with your host, Barry James Dyke. Broadcast live at WSCA Portsmouth Community Radio. Engineered by Phil Kleiger. If you have any questions about today's show or need an ally in conquering the battleground of finance, contact the warrior himself at barryjamesdyke.com. Who are the warriors?